During his inauguration in January, President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva climbed the ramp of the Planalto Palace, holding hands with representatives of Brazil's traditionally marginalized communities, including one of the country's most important and globally renowned indigenous leaders, Haoni Metuktiri. The optics here were obvious. This was going to be a government that would fight for marginalized groups, in stark contrast to the previous administration of Jair Bolsonaro, who, before being elected, proudly claimed that minorities had to stay quiet and bow to the majority. Regarding indigenous rights, there was hope that Lula's return to the presidency would spark a flurry of new indigenous land demarcations. But, eight months into his government, Brazil's traditional communities are calling the president out for excessive delays in these crucial land rights processes. And now, Congress and the Supreme Court are discussing a legal argument that, if turned into law or declared constitutional by the justices, could well halt Brazilian indigenous land claims forever. I'm Ewan Marshall, Deputy Editor of The Brazilian Report, and this is Explaining Brazil. If you like Explaining Brazil, you should subscribe to The Brazilian Report, the journalistic engine behind this podcast. We're an independent organisation funded by our subscribers, and you can help us stay independent and continue to produce award-winning journalism. And if you're already a subscriber, you can go the extra mile and join our Buy Me A Coffee fan page. And in return, you'll get exclusive perks like special newsletters and behind-the-scenes content, as well as a shout-out here in our podcast. And today, I'd like to thank our Buy Me A Coffee members. Andre Novoseltsev, Tom Nolan, Marta Marchins, Pan Ludwig, Leslie Seal, Caroline Hubert, Mark Hillary, John Thomas III, Louise Renz, Erwan Menais, Orlando Black, Steve Knapp, Aaron Berger, James Coney, Kars Vriesvik, Alistair Townsend, Peter Abramson, Jim Awofadeju, Michael Fryer, Mila Renacido, David Dixon, Josep Ozzy Stankovic, Emerging Market Muser, Jarden Eftach, Tonika Thompson, Anderson Da Silva, Kat Kramer, Peter Suffren, Anna Lund, and someone who chose to remain anonymous. And our Buy Me A Coffee members come from all over the world, so please, if we're butchering the pronunciation of your name, do send us an email. And if you too believe in the importance of independent journalism, and if you want to hear your name on our podcast, go to buymeacoffee.com slash brazilianreport and subscribe to one of the membership levels. Click on buymeacoffee.com slash brazilianreport to learn more. This week, the Supreme Court resumes its trial on a legal argument referred to in Brazil as the Marco Temporal, probably best translated as the cut-off point argument. The trial is currently 2-1 to one against the Marco Temporal, but there are 8 justices left to vote and it's anyone's guess as to the outcome. In general terms, the cut-off point argument is seen as overwhelmingly bad for Brazil's indigenous people and good for those seeking to own land on ancestral territories. But what exactly is the cut-off point argument and what's really at stake here? To answer these questions and more, we reached out to Adriana Helmos, political advisor at environmental NGO Instituto Socioambiental. Adriana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation and the opportunity. 
So this cut-off point argument for indigenous land claims, referred to in Brazil as the Marco Temporal, I think it's a bit unclear for Brazilians as well as for foreigners. So can you just explain to our listeners exactly what it means and what it proposes? Well, this cut-off thesis establishes that uh, indigenous peoples should only have the right to the land if they were there in that land in October 5, 1988, which is the date in which the, our constitution was established. So the, the thesis wants to reduce indigenous people's rights uh, by establishing that only the communities that were settled in their lands at this time uh, should uh, say, benefit from the recognition of their rights. You know. And where does this argument come from? Could you give us a bit of historic background as to who first proposed it and when and how it has developed since? Well, it happened that in 2008, uh, the Supreme Court was discussing the case of the Raposa Serra do Sol indigenous territory in Roraima. And it was a very sensitive case because there were a lot of invaders in the area. And the court recognized the right of the indigenous peoples. And one of the arguments of the minister that uh, supported uh, the rights of uh, the communities in Raposa Serra do Sol said was that it was clear that the fact that indigenous people were there in the day that the constitution was established uh, was a kind of cut off uh, recognition of their rights. So he used this argument of the presence of the communities in that date in the territory to defend their rights. You know, what happened was that after that, uh, some lawyers uh, defending uh, farmers' rights, started to use that same uh, perspective uh, in order to, uh, I'd say, deny indigenous people's rights. Because in 1988, we were just a few years after 20-year uh, dictatorship in Brazil. And there is plenty of information about how the dictatorship have uh, gone, uh, struggled, uh, indigenous peoples, and in some regions, they have, uh, I'll say, uh, pressured indigenous peoples to leave their territories, you know. So there are situations in which indigenous people were not there on that date, but they were not there because they were, uh, I'll say, um, put it out by pressure or by violence, because of the dictatorship, or even uh, because of private interests. So the lawyers started to use this thesis against the indigenous people's rights. And just to be clear, when you say farmers, we're talking about major agricultural landowners, right? Not small-scale family farmers. Yeah. Uh, in the majority, we are talking about big landowners. What happened also in Brazil was that some state governments have titled lands and sold lands to landowners, you know, 
uh, in areas that were indigenous territories. You know, so they they uh, they allowed this pressure over the communities. The communities left the land, uh, and then they sold the land. So there are many people that bought this land in good faith, thinking that they were buying land where there was nobody in, but in fact, that were indigenous territories. And Adriana, why October 5th, 1988? Because, I mean, you've said that that was the day that the constitution was enacted, but why use that as a specific cutoff date? Well, although uh, historically uh, we had... uh, previous constitutions that already recognized indigenous people's rights. The constitution of 1988 is the one that sets uh, indigenous rights as a Norwegianary right, you know. So uh, I think that when uh, the minister of the Supreme Court mentioned that date, he was just uh, reinforcing the perspective that the constitution brought in terms of recognizing the originary rights for the land, you know. But the interpretation that was given was about that specific date. This is what the cutoff thesis wants to establish, you know. So I think that the fact is that this is the constitution that says that if we are talking about an originary right to the land, it means that no one that have, uh, I'll say, occupied this land um, afterwards, you know, have the right to receive any kind of indemnization. I think that this is one of the, the points in which our constitution is very strong on behalf of indigenous people's rights, but at the same time, the topic that raises more conflicts, because whenever an indigenous territory is recognized, you know, the landowners over that territory will not receive any payment for the land. They will only be recognized by any kind of investments that they can have done over that territory, you know. So I think that this is one of the the topics of the constitution that strengths indigenous people's rights in one side, but also, you know, uh, increases the struggle and the challenges because of the opposition that it raises from the landowners. And this is what's confusing me, because how exactly would an indigenous community prove that it occupied a certain territory on a specific date in 1988? Because, I mean, like, I struggle to come up with a proof of address from the last three months. How can people expect rural communities to have documented proof of where they lived 35 years ago? Yeah, well, that, that's a very good question. Because, in fact, I think that this is one of the biggest problems of this thesis. Because uh, until the Constitution, indigenous peoples didn't have, for example, the autonomy to go to court to ask for their rights, you know. So even if it was a situation of conflict, uh, they could not uh, stand uh, to say that there was a conflict and someone was uh, occupying their lands. You know, so it's very hard to to think that they will have the capacity of proving that they were there at that point. You know, 
So it's uh, really unfair that we ask them to prove that they were there, you know, uh, instead of uh, establishing that the, the necessity of proving that should be given for by those that are requesting the territory, you know. So this is quite a, a problem. And practically, what would this do to indigenous land demarcations? Would they be made completely impractical? Yeah, we, we think that it will uh, for sure create a, a difficulty to new demarcations, to the demands that are already established but are not formally recognized yet. And it would probably uh, promote a review on part of the areas that are in process of demarcation. You know. And uh, the, what can come from that is something that we can even, can't even, uh, how to say, um, evaluate, because it can create a huge process of reviewing uh, lands. You can have many other interests that will raise and that will perhaps go to court to ask for reviewing areas that are already demarcated, you know. So uh, we, the way the discussion is, uh, is happening now, we don't even know what would be the size of the impact, you know. What would be the areas that uh, would be affected by that? It's hard to, to have an idea. So it can go uh, uh, very further in terms of uh, allowing uh, landowners that had already uh, been um, cancelled because of areas that were demarcated to try to, to go after their rights, you know. So that could uh, create a process of reviewing lands that I think that the, the government wouldn't have an, even the capacity to manage. And as we've explained, I mean, not only is the argument confusing, but the actual process is even more confusing because this week the Supreme Court is continuing a trial on whether this cut-off point argument is constitutional, while Congress is also analysing a bill on the same subject. So why are these two processes going on at the same time. Isn't it the legislative branch's job to make the laws? Yes, definitely. Uh, it's quite a competition between court and Congress, you know. Um, I think that the Congress has uh, presented uh, this proposal during the Bolsonaro government because they wanted to, to already bring the thesis to the, the framework the legal framework. Uh, so they presented this bill of law, which goes beyond the cut-off thesis and also establishes changes in the um, exclusive use of the natural resources inside indigenous territories by uh, saying that uh, indigenous territories would be able to be exploited by uh, external people, you know, not only indigenous people. So the bill of law is even worse than the discussion that's being done in, the, in court. But I also think that the president of court have brought the, the discussion again this week because they want to, to decide in advance. So they want to, to decide 
before the Congress, because the fact is that once this cut-off thesis changes the interpretation of what the Constitution says, it should not be discussed within a bill of law. It would need an amendment to the Constitution, you know. So it's it's much more likely that the Supreme Court has the role to make this interpretation of the Constitution than a bill of law, you know. So if the, the Supreme Court approves it, then I think that this specific bill of law will won't go away, uh, uh, won't go along, you know, because uh, it will, will make no sense to review an interpretation about the Constitution uh, through a bill of law. So it's like uh, a situation uh, in which they are running to see who, who gets the opportunity first. But I think that also the president of the Senate have understood that uh, now it's up to the Supreme Court to make this first decision. And then the, the Senate will have to follow what is decided in the Supreme Court. So between these two situations, I think that for indigenous people, uh, it's better if the Supreme Court have its decision, you know. And now there is this vote that brings also uh, a third proposal, like a mediation proposal. So uh, the Supreme Court will have to find out how to do that, because it's almost that they are really making a new legislation. You know? Adriana, just to finish off, we've seen this process so often in Brazil, when you have a perfectly reasonable proposal on something like gay marriage or abortion, or even these recent discussions on the decriminalization of drug possession, you know, nothing radical, but perfectly moderate. And these proposals are being decided by the Supreme Court and not Congress. Don't you think that maybe unless elected officials can get together and reach a consensus on these matters and, you know, approve laws, that this is always going to be questioned by the population? No, I think that in this specific case, the Supreme Court is uh, more in a, in a position to decide because they, it's their role to say how we have to understand the Constitution, you know. Uh, it should not be done by a bill of law. But I think that uh, this is a like structural problem we have in Brazil, and mainly because our Congress do not really represent the diversity of Brazilian society. You know? So we also have a Congress that represents more some minorities than uh, the, the majority of the population. You know, So, for example, if we take a look in the... Who wrote calculus inside the Brazilian Congress? You know, landowners have uh, a representation that does not uh, re uh, represent the reality of the number of landowners in Brazil. You know, so I think that the fact that the Congress is not really representative of the Brazilian population, you know, also uh, helps this kind of problem. You know. So, uh, helps this kind of situation to, to occur. Adriana Hermos, thanks very much. You're welcome. Thank you for this opportunity. If you like Explaining Brazil, please give us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. It only takes a second and it will help us reach a wider audience. 
or better yet, subscribe to The Brazilian Report, the journalistic engine behind this podcast. We have a subscription-based business model and your memberships fuel our journalism and keep us going and growing. Thanks to our subscribers, we've been able to cover Brazil and Latin America extensively and our work has won and been shortlisted for several international journalism awards. More recently, our newsletters won the Best Newsletter Prize in the Americas from the World Association of Newspapers and News Publishers for a small or local newsroom. And in order to keep doing that work, we need your support. So go to brazilian.report slash subscribe. I'm Ewan Marshall. Thanks for listening and Explaining Brazil will be back next week.